Uh, tonight, by special request, we're going to talk about effort. <laughs> I mentioned many years ago, in the 80s, I spent a lot of time in and out of Thailand. In the latter part of the 80s as a, as a bhikkhu, before then as a layman. And when I was still a layman, one place I always visited was Wat Swan Mok. And um, they had this... Um, program going where they would teach retreats for lay people, usually spaced out hippies from the nearby um, tourist islands and in one of these retreats, very unusually Ajahn Po uh, gave us a talk uh, the, the star of the monastery was Ajahn Buddha Dasa who gave these magnificent Dharma talks, but the abbot was Ajahn Po uh, he ran the place uh, and I was very impressed by him he's one of the best monks I've ever come across if you're looking for him you're just as likely to find him up on the roof hammering uh, a nail into the repairing the, the buildings as to find him anywhere else uh, he was, he was uh, in many ways a model of how to be a, a bhikkhu so I had a lot of time for him but I had never heard him give a dharma talk his English wasn't that good and he was a man of action rather than of words. So when he trooped in to give us a talk, I thought, this could be good. And uh, he sat down and he looked at us, and his opening line was, meditation is war. <laughs> he glared at us, and he said, war against what? Defilement. <laughs> War against defilement. <laughs> what is defilement? Lust. Lust is defilement. And he proceeded from there. But from there, for, at that point, he had completely lost his audience. Who <laughs> 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 were just simply not interested. But this uh, meditation is war is a traditional motif. Um, for, to describe what meditation practice is all about uh, Upandita was very fond of the image he, he described the relationship between serenity and insight uh, meditation, insight meditation is like you're charging across no man's land with a fixed bayonet and the enemy are just blasting away at you whereas every now and again it, gets, it just gets too much so you dive behind a, a boulder and you go Phew! <laughs> and that's serenity practice. <laughs> so, uh, so this uh, this way of looking at meditation, uh, which again is, is very traditional, uh, emphasises that the aspect of commitment, energy, effort, perseverance, self-reliance—all those qualities. Courage courage, determination and um, the, the image is based on a quite realistic appreciation of our situation um, the fact is that we are stuck in our suffering and what we want is to move towards transformation um, and it's up to each one of us no one else can do it for us um, Buddha is not about to descend from his altar and give us a helping hand no amount of praying will make the slightest difference whatsoever um, and in embarking on this project what it requires us to do is to go against a lifetime mm -hmm. of habits mm -hmm. we've been carefully cultivating habits which the Buddha would call akusala unwholesome we've been vigorously doing this for our entire lives and then suddenly we're expected to go in the opposite direction um, and if I don't do it now it won't be done so it's you can see where they're coming from um, as Ajahn Po pointed out meditation is war on kilesa defilement um, defilement is the 
standard translation of the Pali word kilesa. And we've talked, we've spoken about this early in the retreat. Um, in the Pali tradition, kilesa is taken from the verb kilisati to stick, to adhere. And the the image is uh, if you have a white cloth and you get some mud, you throw it at the cloth, the mud sticks to the cloth, the cloth is dirtied, it is defiled. So, defilement. But this, the, what the image is presenting is an image of stuckness. The problem is the mud is stuck to the cloth. Now there's no problem with the cloth. And there's no problem with the mud. The problem is the stuckness. And this is the essence of kilesa. Um, it's, it's literally more stuckness than defilement. <coughs> But we are defiled by this condition of stuckness. In other words, by what we cling to. It's all about our clinging. And when we take up a meditation practice, we're going against these deeply ingrained patterns of clinging. And we are launching out into a journey we have never attempted before. And we're heading to a destination that we have no understanding of. So... Um, not so easy and what this practice will reveal to us very quickly and efficiently is exactly our obsessions what we're stuck to what we cling ferociously to this is what will be revealed again and again and again and of course most obviously in the experience that we call distraction so if it's this past month we've spent a lot of time talking about distraction about how to work with it. Um, so there's, you know, it's got this image of war has got a something on its side. But it does have one disadvantage. Because war always entails winning and losing. And it's in this particular war, I'm battling against myself. This is a civil war. There are some parts of me. I want to get enlightened versus other parts of me nah I just want to relax I want to keep doing what I've been doing um, so if I'm in battle against myself then ultimately I have to lose <laughs> I must be on the losing side um, and what inspires my heroism in this war it's my desire for a better self. I'm not really satisfied with the self that I've got. I wish I could trade it in and get an upgraded model, but it's not so easy. Um, and so I come to the meditation practice hoping that I will be improved in some way by the experience. Now, this is a war that I'm already familiar with in my ordinary everyday life. This is the war that we um, see in consumerism and ambition. I don't like what I've got. I want something better. So I'm going to struggle to get it. In the belief that once I get it, then everything will be okay. So there's a quality of drivenness in this project. This is what the Buddha calls tanha, literally thirst, um, but usually translated craving so when I come to the practice I import this relationship into the practice that I'm doing but the weird thing is that what brought me here is the realisation of the futility of living like that I've been on the planet long enough to realise that it actually doesn't work um, So I'm always struggling for something or someone better to turn up in the future and it never does. And this is, this is what brings me to meditation in the first place. So what I find is that I import into my meditation practice the very condition that I'm struggling to escape from. 
So it's like I am charging into battle, but the enemy is the one who is charging into battle. So I end up going around in circles. So when I get into this struggle, into this war, it's easy to forget that the only strategy that can actually win this war is what we could call presence. Presence, being present. Um, and we could, we could call this a chosen intimacy with whatever is happening now. And this is a strategy of play rather than of conflict. Um, play is similar to war in that it requires energy and commitment. But unlike war, it does not look forward to a result, and in particular to the right result. Uh, it doesn't look forward to anything beyond itself. When we're playing, what we're doing is just playing. We're not trying to get something out of it. We're just playing. So when we look at the pain that drives the practice in the first place, why we come here, and the pain that we're trying to escape from, when we start to look at this, we realise that this pain comes precisely from our failure to be intimate with the present. We have developed a habit of hurrying towards the future. <coughs> and, and we do this because we imagine that it will bring us closer to what we actually want. So we're always disconnecting from this, which is happening now, um, because we're busy grasping something else, something that will be realised only in the future. But it will never be found now. It's always in the future. Um, so we're moving towards a better future, and we're doing this all the time. And of course this has become a whole ideology, you know, ideology of progress. But when we do this, we find that we're permanently disconnected with what's actually happening now. And this disconnection guarantees that our pain keeps going, continues. So what, we, what we're looking for is a sense of play, which is the practice of this moment for its own sake. Um, when, we're, when we're battling for something, what we are battling for is always something in the, that will come in the future. And we can, right now, we can know it only in the form of an image that the mind throws up. An image. Image. Um, so we're disregarding the present in order to lean forward and hold on to an image which when we look at it um, has power over us precisely because it feeds our obsession with ourselves. Because the, the images that constitute our imagined victory are all characterised by a very strong sense of me finally arrived at the place that I've always wanted to be. Um, because in that place I become the person that I've always wanted to become. No longer this person who isn't good enough. He's never good enough. So this relationship to the practice is always looking forward, projecting forward, leaning forward, grasping forward, 
and that necessarily results in a disconnection with the actual experience that's happening now. Now, before the Buddha became the Buddha, when he was still Siddhartha, when he and a Bodhisattva, that was exactly the trap that he found himself in. And we talked about this earlier in the retreat when we were talking about the middle way. In, um, in his later years, he, he was reminiscing with his students about what he did in his ascetic practices before he attained awakening. And he described his practice, his approach to practice in this way. I thought, suppose, with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrain and crush mind with mind. So with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained and crushed mind with mind. While I did so, sweat ran from my armpits. So we've already gone through this passage. Um, Siddhartha was crushing mind with mind. Bang! He was, he was definitely at war. And to do this kind of practice, he must have been looking for a result. He must have been looking for something which would happen next. Um, some reward for his effort. So he had an image of himself as being fully awakened and he wasn't prepared to settle for anything less. That's why he walked out of his previous practice communities. And if only he could work hard enough, he could fulfil that ambition. And the ascetic practice is the practice of the macho workaholic. I've just got to work harder. Um, but And if he was not yet awakened then obviously he wasn't working hard enough. So he had to work harder and harder and harder. And it got to the point where, as he, as he explained to his students many years later, I thought, whatever painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion practitioners have experienced in the past, in the future, or in the present, this is the utmost there is none beyond this. It's like what it is humanly possible to do. I have done. I cannot work any harder. I can't even keep working this hard for very long because I'm going to die soon from my effort. And he goes on to say, yet I have not attained any state surpassing the human by this racking practice of austerities any distinction in understanding and seeing worthy of cultivated ones. So you could say that Siddhartha found himself in the situation in which he had won the race. No one was as hardworking, as effortful in his practice than he was. He had succeeded all expectations in his performance review. And yet, still, it wasn't enough. He still hadn't attained what he was looking for. He still hadn't attained peace. Now, and this is another issue that we've been talking about during this retreat. You notice that with, when Siddhartha was doing this kind of practice, he was caught up in the reality of time. Time, to him, was very real. Now I suffer later I'll get the payoff. And I'm putting up with this suffering now because of my belief in the future payoff. Now, uh, later on in the sweet essence, which we also went through, we saw that if he's obsessed with time, with the reality of time, the belief in the future and in the past, then he was caught up in papancha, um, conceptual proliferation as we translated it or complication in other words his conceptual mind is in hyperdrive um, and when, when we're caught up in time like he was then we're also caught up in self because the self requires time 
I can't believe myself to be me without a felt sense of the reality of the past and the future. It's incoherent for me to believe that I am Patrick, who is the teacher, without a sense that I came in here before and I will leave later. Um, without that, I can't sustain the identity. And our relationship to time and to self is closely related to our relationship to effort. So we're striving to get something. This very project assumes the reality of the future. It assumes the reality of the image that I have in my mind of what it is that I'm striving to get. It assumes the reality of the one who is doing the striving and the one who will be finally triumphant over all difficulties and achieve whatever it is that I'm trying to achieve. And we find it frustrating because no matter how hard we try, what we're looking for hasn't arrived yet. Sometimes it turns up briefly, but then it crumbles. So we've got to start again. And since what we want isn't happening, then we have to make more effort. Because obviously we're not making enough effort. So we try harder, or we fall back in exhaustion because it's all too difficult. We pick ourselves up off the floor, try again, collapse, try, collapse, try, collapse. And we get caught up in that civil war that we've been talking about. And um, I'm reminded here of my old teacher, Sayadaw Upandita, who tended to encourage this, this kind of relationship. His catch cry, at least what I remember from many years ago, is basically, more effort. Make more effort. And one time... Uh, with the traditionally with the Mahasi approach in Burma, people would go in for two or three month retreats. Um, um, the bhikkhus traditionally have a vasa, a three month retreat period each year. So a three month retreat is very traditional. Uh, but lay people, most of the people practicing at these centres are lay people. But they settled on two or three months as a re appropriate time for a retreat because they felt that that gave enough time to develop the momentum required for the meditator to attain the first stage of awakening. And if they didn't do it in that period of time, they were much better off going home, taking a break and coming back next year. And the government at the time, this is early independence, um, so late 40s into the 50s, at some point... Uh, well, they encourage this, this kind of project. For example, if you were, were... I don't know if it's still happening, but if you were a civil servant in Burma, you could take meditation leave, paid leave to go and meditate, um, because the government was very enthusiastic about um, encouraging this. Now, when they started bringing in foreigners, you get people who are coming from the other side of the world, and they managed to land in Burma. And basically... Once they leave, the teachers have no idea whether they're ever going to see them again. So if they're there, they want to keep them there until they get the result. And the problem is, of course, that the Westerners are a lot slower than the Burmese. Burmese are a lot faster in the practice, in terms of making progress. Westerners are very slow. So they needed more time. And the attitude was, you just keep going until you crack it, and just keep going. So people would stay six months, a year, two years, uh, doing this very intensive practice, compared to which what we're doing is a holiday camp. And at one point when I, when I was there, uh, well, the, the, the foreigners um, had their own meditation halls, basically because the, the Burmese were so fascinated by foreigners who would come and meditate 
that you would... Well, first of all, they would always divide the genders. You've got the men's meditation hall and the women's meditation hall. Of course, there's more than one women's meditation hall because there are a lot more women meditating than there are men. Um, so there are at least two women's halls and one men's hall. So I go into the men's hall and every single day there will be at least one Burmese lay meditator who would come up and want to talk to me because there was, he was so happy and pleased that he was a foreigner coming and practicing Buddhism and he just had to talk to me and say what a wonderful thing it was. So every day you're being interrupted by these enthusiastic characters coming wanting to talk to you. So the teachers created a, a, a little meditation hall for the, the foreigners to, to kind of protect them from the curiosity of the, of the, of the Burmese. So we had the men's foreign, the foreign meditators men's hall that I, that I used to go to. There's a photograph of me taken just outside that hall with some other Australian monks up on the notice board in, in there. And there, there was a period of time when in this hall it was characterised by the greatest epidemic of sloth and torpor I have ever witnessed in my entire life. It was just phenomenal. I used to meditate with my eyes open because of my early Zen training so I could see all this. And it was this marvellous <laughs> symphony of sloth and torpor <laughs> that, was, that was going on uh, all of the time and strangely enough people were not making very good progress <laughs> um, the atmosphere the, the culture was one of heroic effort so you would hear muttered conversations uh, according to the schedule you, you were allowed to sleep four hours per night if you want to, wanted to know why the answer is simple Buddha slept four hours. It's, if it's good enough for Buddha, it's good enough for you. So four hours sleep per night was scheduled. So you would sometimes hear these muttered conversations. So, how many hours are you sleeping? Me? Oh, well, uh, <coughs> four. I'm sleeping three. <laughs> so it's this macho drive. And of course... Everybody was just totally exhausted and just falling asleep all day in the hall and completely bogged down. So Upandita felt that he had to stimulate some something. So he gave us a talk about effort. And the, the three stages of right effort. And he compared it, he was being very scientific. It was like a rocket taking up three-stage rocket. So the first stage, you had these enormous engines and these incredibly powerful thrust and exist. the rocket starts to get up defying gravity heroic effort heroic effort and then finally you, you get some momentum and the first stage drops away it's the second stage and then you have to make more effort more effort and then finally you get into orbit and the, the second stage drops and then you've only got the third stage and what do you do? you make more effort so he, about, he, he, he hammered on for about an hour. I don't know about anybody else, but I was utterly demoralised. And one of the meditators went to see him later, and he's privately, not even the interpreter. And he said, Sayadaw, I can't even make it to the first stage of heroic effort. Am I just wasting my time here? Should I just go home? And he said very quietly, look, don't pay any attention to what I'm saying. I have to say these things but you just pay no attention <laughs> just pay no attention I have to say these things <laughs> so we, it was very strange we were caught up in this kind of culture gap uh, like the teachers had to say certain things regardless of whether or not it was a good idea that was Why? their job that was what it was expected of them their, their, their job is very tightly controlled by the, by the culture and I noticed one night, according to the schedule we would the, the hall would close at 9pm there was an 8 to 9 sitting from 9 to 10pm there was walking meditation outside from 10 to 11 was the final sitting period which was done inside your room 11 o'clock, go to bed, 4 a.m., get up, hall opens at 5 a.m. 
One night, I came out of the hall for the 10 to 11 walking meditation. I was doing my walking meditation, and I stopped, and I looked around, and I thought, where is everyone? And I realised, of course, all the Burmese have gone to bed. Obviously. (laughs) And they'll be in the hall at 5am the next morning. In other words, in Burma, the Burmese are quite relaxed. Now, if you want this much effort out of a Burmese audience, you demand this much. But if you've got fanatical foreigners who've gone all the way there to attain enlightenment and they hear the demand for this much, what they'll try to do is this much. So a lot of this was cultural confusion that was going on. Um, But this, uh, the rhetoric of more effort is very characteristic of the Burmese and frankly a lot of it is just kind of PR. It's not to be taken all that seriously. But people have got caught up in it. Um, if we're looking for what the Buddha calls right effort, sammavayama, it's found in the commitment to recognise what is already here. It's got nothing to do with what we imagine might happen in the future. And this, I think, is really important. Um, Could you repeat that, please? Uh, right effort has got nothing to do with what we imagine might happen in the future. I'm not striving for anything. What I'm striving to do is to recognise what is already here. So let's look at how the Buddha speaks about effort. We'll go through a, f- a few texts. There's one discourse called Badekarata Sutta, an auspicious night. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, the, the, the centre of it is this um, verse about the practitioner and the, the just the little bit that I want to uh, present here. Uh, the Buddha says, Do not run after the past, nor long for the future. The past is left behind, and the future not yet reached. Instead, see deeply into each presently arisen phenomenon, while neither scattered nor disturbed. So, um, first of all, the relationship to time. Do not run after the past nor long for the future. Time gets in the way. So, And time presents itself as mental images. That's all that it presents itself. And these images, of course, can be accompanied by a great deal of energy that we feel in the body and in the mind. So coming to the end of a retreat, typically most people's mind thoughts are preoccupied by future rather than past. And images of the future have a very strong flavour of reality and they stimulate a lot of energy. We've built up a lot of energy in the retreat and now this energy is being harnessed by fantasies about the future. But the future comes to us only as a concept, only as an image. So do not run after the past nor long for the future. The past is left behind, the future not yet reached. In other words, they don't exist except as presently experienced phenomena. Instead, see deeply. Now this see deeply, the verb in Pali is vipassati. The noun is vipassana. So we know vipassana as insight. And we normally see it as a noun, but it's also a verb. The verb to insight. And here translated as to see deeply. But insighting is an activity. It's something we're meant to do. Instead, see deeply into each presently arisen phenomenon. It can only be done in the present. The object of the investigation can only be the present because that's all that exists. Uh, We cannot insight 
past or future. We cannot incite our past records of failures. We cannot incite our hopes and desires for the future. We can only incite this. Now, now it's possible that right now is arising thoughts of the past or the future. We incite them as they arise. But you notice that the relationship to time uh, is one of dismissing the reality of time and just staying with the present. The practice can only be done now and the result of the practice can only be experienced now. We cannot experience a future result. It just cannot be done. So what we're looking for is a sense of commitment and a relationship to the present which is characterised by a sense of harmony. Um, and there's a, a pleasant a pleasure in it because with this relationship we no longer need to look to an imagined future for something we feel is missing now. That relationship is painful, it's dukkha. So the sense that there's something missing and I've got to grab something in order to ease the present suffering. Um, but when we don't have to look to an imagined future, that there's a sense of ease, balance and harmony in that relationship. And as we said, we find this relationship in play. When we play, then um, we're doing... Um, well, the opposite of play to me is work. And when I'm working, I'm doing something now in order to gain something else later on. So when I had a, a day job, I would turn up at the office, not because I particularly wanted to turn up at the office, but because at the end of the week I wanted the cash. This is work. Now, one could, of course, go to the office and play, which would be a much better relationship. Um, I sometimes find that relationship in my work, and it's really nice. Uh, where I find myself doing something and I forget about anything else. Um, because I'm not looking for a future result, I'm just doing it for the sake of doing it. And there's a, there is an ease and a pleasure in that relationship. In, when, we, when we're playing, we have nothing to gain, and so we have nothing to lose. And it's a whole different relationship. And so in this practice, we've been emphasising the play aspect. You know, don't stress out. Plenty of time. No set schedule. Explore. Be interested. Be curious. What's going on here? What's this all about? Try this. Try that. Experiment. See if this works. See if that works. If you're interested in it, go for it. All of these kinds of structures and instructions are designed to try to cultivate a sense of play, uh, which has a lot to do with effort. So in one discourse, and we've looked at this before, the Buddha compares right effort to music. Um, and this is the famous story about Venerable Sona, Sona, as we said, he was a rich young man who got religion and became a bhikkhu. And he was one of these young macho types who was determined to make it to full enlightenment as soon as possible. But he was becoming disheartened because no matter how hard he worked, he wasn't getting good result. So he would work harder, but he still didn't get, didn't get a result. So he worked harder, and he was just getting completely fed up with the whole thing. Um, and the Buddha was called in to talk to him. And of course, the Buddha would have recognised exactly this pattern because that was what he did uh, when he started out. So the Buddha spoke to him about his practice of music when he was a layman. And Sona played the Veena, which is um, it's an earlier version of the Sita, 
stringed instrument. And the Buddha asked him to reflect on his experience as a musician. When the strings on your vena were too tight, was it well-tuned and easy to play? Well, no. When its strings were too loose, was your vena well-tuned and easy to play? Well, no. When its strings were neither too tight nor too loose, but adjusted to a balanced pitch, was your vena well-tuned and easy to play? Well, no. So too, Sona, if effort is too forceful, this leads to agitation, and if effort is too weak, this leads to stagnancy. Therefore, resolve on a calmness of effort, attain balance of the faculties, and there take up the meditation theme. So, um, avoid being too forceful, avoid being too weak. If there's too much force, there's some kind of agitation. If there's, if the, if there's not enough effort, there's a sense of stagnancy. And so, finding right effort is very largely a matter of recognising wrong effort. And having recognised it, doing something about it. So is there a sense of strain of agitation within the chitta, within the heart-mind? Maybe I'm trying too hard. Maybe, and maybe that trying is a pushing away of something I don't want to see. Or a desperate grabbing onto something in my obsessions. Uh, is there stagnancy? Is there a dullness in the mind? So what's, what's happening there? And if I need to stimulate energy, how would I do it? It might be simply get up and walk or move in the, in the open air. Or it, might make, or it might mean more effort in the sense of closely focusing on the meditation object. But there's a continual tuning of the instrument that's required and the tuning is effort the effort factor is this process of tuning the instrument so it's just right not too tight, not too slack and we can tell that it's, that's the case when the music comes out which is satisfactory so it's the quality of the music tells us where we are Um, in another discourse at Devadaha the Buddha addressed this whole issue of too much effort this uh, discourse is quite interesting it's very philosophical and it's a, a, a debate that the Buddha has with Jain ascetics and one of the reasons why it's interesting is because he's, he's debating as it were with his former self that when the Buddha was, um, he did this ascetic practice and he recognised what was wrong with it and its futility and then he discovered what actually works and so now he's talking to other people who are caught up in that same ascetic practice and he's, and he, and he's putting the boot into them and he knows exactly where to aim it <laughs> because he was um, in that same boat. But there's also some philosophical aspects as well, which is which is quite interesting. Um, the Buddha spends a fair bit of energy um, tearing apart the idea that everything that happens in the present is the result of past karma, and that view has crept into Buddhist traditions. Although he did his best to actually get rid of it, but anyway, at one point he gets onto the question of how action and effort can be fruitful um, he often used agricultural metaphors so I'm working in the, in the fields, I want a fruit I want a result so how can I practice in such a way that I will get a result so he says how is action fruitful how is effort fruitful here, a practitioner is not overwhelmed by dukkha and does not overwhelm himself with dukkha. He does not give up the pleasure of the Dharma and is not infatuated with that pleasure. 
So it's interesting that he starts with the, the question of, of pleasure and pain. Um, if we have this habitual attitude of too much striving, practice becomes a bitter pill that we have to swallow if we are to get well. Um, so it's we may be overwhelmed by dukkha or overwhelm ourselves by dukkha. Um, bringing too much pain into the practice when it's actually at best not necessary at worst it just gets in the way so he bring, he, the first thing he does is draw attention to the to issues of pleasure um, he does not give up the pleasure of the Dharma uh, it's literally it's dhamika sukha dharmic pleasure um, and this is um, the pleasure of the Dharma has a lot to do with again the relationship to time so in that discourse on an auspicious night the night is auspicious precisely because of the giving up of past and future when we live in the present there is a pleasure in that so when I'm present this ordinary everyday experience opens can give us a tremendous amount of pleasure um, the, the pleasure of the weather the environment the pleasure of just walking along a veranda when we're really present to the experience so he does not give up the pleasure of the Dharma and is not infatuated with that pleasure it's always a balance don't, don't, again don't grab grab onto it and try to make it into something he understands when I make a determined effort this particular source of dukkha fades away in me because of that determined effort and when I intimately witness this particular source of dukkha fades away in me as I cultivate equanimity so here he gets on to what we actually do and you notice how adaptable the model that he's presenting is first of all the kind of practice varies depending on one's understanding of dependent arising so in the course of this retreat we've come back again and again to this basic principle of dependent arising whatever happens in experience happens because of something else something else uh, this arises because something else arose and this ceases when that ceases and in the four truths the basic model that he presents is he looks at the relationship between craving and dukkha when craving arises dukkha arises when craving ceases dukkha ceases so the idea of looking beyond not just the meditation object itself but looking beyond it to the network of, re in, of relationships within which it's embedded so the experience of practicing is changing why is it changing something is happening which is feeding this so this particular bit of dukkha this particular unpleasant situation painful situation it has a source a cause, a condition and the word that Buddha uses here is nidana which we've referred to before when we were talking about the sweet essence and it's a word which is part of the basic language of dependent arising so as soon as someone hears this word they know he's talking about dependent arising so the whole interrelationships so you know you notice that well he's saying this particular source of dukkha so that he is, he's assuming we're paying close attention to the experience we can sort out okay there's this particular source of dukkha compared to that one so there's a sensitivity a refinement mm -hmm. assumed in the practice and it's assumed that we're studying the flow of experience we're interested in how one thing leads to another um, so he says um, uh, and and, and different situations require different responses this is I think the key point it's not 
a one-size-fits-all situation. It's not just make more effort, nor is it just um, make less effort. Uh, sometimes you find fashions in meditation practice. So the Burmese emphasised the make more effort model. And so when people came out of Burma and started teaching in the West, they tended to be into make more effort. And then when they noticed the students tying themselves up in knots, they said, well, maybe you, maybe not. And then you get other forms of meditation practice coming in that are very consciously saying, don't make more effort. Um, don't make too much effort at all. In fact, don't make any effort. You know, just sit there. Whatever happens is meditation, so don't worry about it. Just let the mind cruise along. You just be there for it. Don't make effort. So you get shifts from one, um, one fashion to another. But what we see in the early teachings is it's, not, it's never one size fits all. Sometimes, yeah, more effort. Sometimes, definitely less effort. It's a question of being able to pick it. And this requires a, a skill from the meditator. So the two forms of practice that the Buddha is talking about is the first one is determined effort. And this is very familiar. This is the, the Burmese way. Now this is directed attention. So you're deliberately directing attention to something and it's um, possibly aimed at directly challenging a problem. A problem has arisen, bang, just go for it. So, for example, the mind is dull. So I practice in such a way as to stimulate energy. The mind is dull. I put more effort into directly confronting that dull state of mind. How do I know the mind is dull? What are the symptoms? Oh, well, there's, there's heaviness. Is the heaviness in the mind, or is it in the body, or is it both? Pay attention. Really look at it. Go straight into the centre of it. Um, so this is applying, this is a, a determined effort aimed directly at the problem. Or the mind is restless. So I practice in such a way as to deliberately calm the flow of energy. Deliberately bring it down. I'm doing something to get this. So in either case, I directly confront the situation and I do something about it, but it's something aimed at this particular situation. It's precisely aimed. And to, to accomplish this, I need what we talked about early in the retreat, sati sampajanya, mindfulness and clear understanding. Uh, we talked about it as mindfulness is essentially presence and clear understanding is the intelligence associated with that presence. So intelligent presence. We're bringing our intelligence to the project. So sometimes a determined effort uh, and sometimes intimate witnessing so when I make a determined effort, this particular source of dukkha fades away in me because of that determined effort. And when I intimately witness, this particular source of dukkha fades away in me as I cultivate equanimity. Now this intimate witnessing is um, it's a compound verb based on the verb upekati, um, which is a verb we do not have in English, as far as I'm aware. It's to economize. Uh, you know the noun equanimity. Uh, this is the verb to equanimity. We don't have I don't think we have a verb for equanimity, do we? I liked equanimize. Yeah, equanimize is pretty good. But I think that's my invention. It's like it's two words like with equanimity. Doing something with equanimity. Yeah, but that, that's doing something yeah, that's right. with equanimity added on, but to equanimize itself. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a verb in Pali and Sanskrit. And again, it's an activity. And it's interesting that when you look at the basic terms that the Buddha uses, you know, they're nouns, but they're all based on verbs. They're, ac they're, ac they're activities. And this is typical of the Buddha's dynamic approach. A thing is its activity. Its identity is what it does. Um, anyway, this verb, 
which we've already mentioned actually it comes from the root ikh to see so this is seeing and you get the prefix upa which denotes nearness or close touch so seeing now seeing implies a direct present engagement but it also implies distance so if i'm seeing something i'm separate from it and then you add upa which means which denotes nearness or close touch so i'm seeing it but from very very close by so this intimate witnessing very very close um, but there's a detachment so i'm not getting caught up in it i'm separated out from it but i'm very very close to it have you ever had that kind of experience when you meditate mm-hmm. so like really 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 close but it's not like boom you're in it you've fallen you've entangled yourself in it there's that sense of separation but very close by and this is economizing this is um, upekati so intimate witnessing um uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as looks on with equanimity. Um, so in this, there's no attempt to influence anything. They're not doing anything with the experience. Just staying really, really close to it. Um, mindfulness becomes strong, it becomes continuous. Remember when we talked about the um, chorus in Satipatthana Sutta, um, the the Buddha was talking about sati, mindfulness, and then he talks about patti sati. And the patti denotes continuity and depth. Uh, so when the mindfulness becomes strong, clear, continuous, equanimity develops. And the mind comes into its own natural balance. So the chitta comes into harmony. And when the, the mind changes and it comes into harmony then the object known by the mind changes and again this is dependent arising change the mind which is experiencing something and the something changes change the something and the mind that knows it changes so this is a a more hands off approach than determined effort this is not trying to do anything with it at all this is just staying intimately present to it and the Buddha says um, and uh, when I intimately witness this particular source of dukkha and again it's particular it works with this source of pain not with that one but this one this particular source of dukkha fades away in me as I cultivate equanimity as I develop equanimity He doesn't give examples, does he, Patrick, of what kinds of dukkha might be? No, this would be something for the commentaries. Again, the suttas are very compact. So usually you don't get much in the way of examples. But certainly not there, unfortunately. Um, When it comes down to it, for me, right effort... Um, is essentially a matter of choice. So you could say that presence is a chosen intimacy with whatever is happening now. Um, It's just what's happening now. It's got nothing to do with past or future. It's just now. And being, staying present to it, but that presence requires a choice. And this choice is unusual. Because as we started off by saying, our obsessions, our obsessions are habitual. Um, so we keep making the choice to pursue our obsessions. And we do it out of sheer habit, apart from anything else, because we've been doing this for decades. So it seems hard to make the choice to be present to this now. Essentially, it's just a choice. Uh, One sign of wrong effort is when any hint of tension develops in the body. Because it's not physical. 
It's a choice. And if there's any kind of striving f- towards past or future, then there's too much. There's something extra added to it. It's a choice now. But the thing about this choice is that it has to be made now. Um, this is something I realised in Burma um, many years ago. Uh, I discovered when I started practicing there, I discovered with some horror that the project was to stay continuously mindful all day. And when I thought about the enormity of this task, I realised I can't. It is absolutely impossible. I could never do this. But then it occurred to me that what I could do was be mindful now. And so it's this relationship to the present which is central to effort it's not about doing it all day it's about doing it now and the it is a choice the choice now to be present to this which is already happening Um, it's the relationship between this um, not past and not future now but still tracking the cause and effect of dependent origination. Yeah, because it's observable now. Oh. And this is, again, I think one of the, which we touched upon at the very beginning when we talked about mindfulness as remembering the present. Mm. Um, in modern Dharma discourse, usually when people say the present, they will add the word moment. The present moment. You notice I've been careful to avoid it. Mm. Um, The Buddha does not use the word moment when he talks about the present. Uh, And if you think about it, well, what is a moment? A moment is a very brief period of time which, if you blink, you'll miss it. And it's merely the preliminary to what's going to happen next. And we can, we, I suspect, think about the present as a moment, partly because of our rushed relationship to time normally. So for us, normally, the present is rather like a transit lounge in a major airport. We land, restlessly hang out, and then dash off somewhere else. But we're always going somewhere. But it's also got a lot to do with our technology. We can measure time in ways that, in the time of the Buddha, they couldn't even conceive of. So they had a very different relationship to time. Uh, and I think for them the present was not a moment. It was a space. You remember at the very beginning of the, of the retreat I suggested the meditation experiment see if you can find the border between this present moment and the future. See if you can find the point where the present becomes the future. Because if it's a moment, a moment is very small and has very clear boundaries. So can you find the border where the present becomes the future? Can you find the border when the past becomes the present? No, all we've got is the present. That's all we have. So even when I'm tracking cause and effect relationships which take, which are linear over time, when I'm tracking them, they're all in the present. Mm-hmm. It's a big present. Mm-hmm. But it's present because it's what is being seen, heard, smelt, tasted, touched, or minded now. It's the nowness which is crucial. And the nowness is not tiny, it'll, it'll moment. It's big. Um, what gets in the way of this practice is not distraction Um, distraction is not the enemy of this practice, it's the content of the practice, what gets in the way is habit because when we get lost into habit we go unconscious, we sleepwalk and that is the opposite of mindfulness Um, if you look at habit the habit that gets in the way of our practice how it presents itself to us 
it presents as a choice made now but unknowingly I make the choice to drop into this thought stream but I don't know that I've made the choice I wake up to it later the practice presents as a choice made now but knowingly and that's the difference so it's knowing that choice um, but the, the effort the work is always to remain present to this now not to get caught up in past and future any questions or comments? You mentioned you, you know right effort when you do wrong effort. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's true of a lot of the sort of right view, right intention, uh, you know, right speech, etc.? Mm. I think you know it in, as a, the failure to do it. I think that's the, the way we learn things. Mm. It's like we learn by doing, and we make lots of mistakes. So making mistakes is very important and if not essential. But of course we get a feel for it at some point. So we get a feel for right effort. And it's in, again it's got a lot to do with the relationship to time when, t when past and future are either not there at all or they're just not pulling at us. They might be there in the background but they're not really pulling at us. And there's a sense of flow and ease of the absence of strain and but clarity so you can you can develop a taste for it you can recognize it and in recognizing it there's pleasure to it this is a pleasure associated with dharma and you get a sense of the pleasure of it and then the mind will naturally be inclined to go back there whereas if it's strained the mind will naturally be inclined to not go back there it's got to be flogged into going back Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.